We're starting this morning a series. We introduced that series this past Sunday morning, and this morning we're going to start into the text. This is the book of 1 John. John is the 23rd book of the New Testament. John is considered an epistle. Now, don't misunderstand that. The epistles were not married to the apostles. Not, that's not what happened. The word epistle means message or letter. This is a letter. It's considered a general epistle, meaning a letter to Christians in general. 1 John 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That phrase, that which was from the beginning, has a direct connection to something John said earlier in his gospel. John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning... Same phrase. In the beginning was the Word. The Bible sometimes interprets itself. In Latin, that's called analogia scriptura. Analogia scriptura means comparing Scripture to Scripture. And that's how we understand this verse from 1 John 1 and verse 1. If possible, in comparing Scripture, we compare the same subject from the same biblical author and from the same book from that author, if that's possible, or from another book from that same author. The subject is the word, the word, word. The human author is John, and the books are First John and John's Gospel. Jesus is called the Word, the Greek word translated into our language as word is logos, logos, and logos means something that is said, a speech, a discourse, a principle or thought. In ancient Greek philosophy, word also referred to a universal divine reason or the mind of God. God's Word, God's Logos, exists in two basic forms. One, in printed form. God's Logos exists in printed form. Those are the Scriptures, meaning God's Word in print and on paper. Notice 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason, we, Paul, who is the human author, Paul and his associates, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you, the congregation of Thessalonica, this letter is addressed to them, when you receive the word of God, meaning the scriptures, which you heard from us, Paul read that printed word, logos, to the people and said, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. People, this book in my hand is God's logos, God's word from him to us in printed form. Second, God's logos exists in human form, human form. That is Jesus himself. Now, we're going to compare from 1 John to John's gospel. John 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, the Word, and without Him, Nothing was made that was made. Verse 4, in him, the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, verse 14 from John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14 clarifies just who this word is. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word became human flesh. That's called the incarnation. Around Christmas season, we hear the word incarnation. Incarnation means enfleshment. God became human form and human flesh 
in the person of his son, Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, logos, in human form, that John describes is Jesus. In summation, notice, John said this about Jesus being the word. Six statements. Jesus is eternal. From verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Second, Jesus was with God. Verse 1, also, uh, Jesus was with God before coming to earth. Verse 1, the Word was with God. Statement 3, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Verse 1, one more time, the Word was God. Statement 4, Jesus is the Creator. Creator, from verse 3, all things were made through Him. Statement 5, Jesus is the giver of life. From verse 4, in Him was life. And statement 6, Jesus became human to reside with us. From verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the human logos, the Word in human form and flesh. One more text. Revelation 19, verse 13. And remember, John also authored Revelation. This is a comment on Jesus' return to the earth to set up his messianic kingdom called the millennium. Notice, he, this is Jesus from the preceding verses, was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So Jesus is the incarnate Word the incarnate Logos. Jesus originated as the eternal God. He was the second member of the triune Godhead. And then at Bethlehem, he was born as a human. He became the God-man. The concept of Jesus' humanity coexisting with his deity is difficult for us as mere humans to understand. But it's a biblical truism. Jesus was and still is one person. But he has two natures. He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. That's called his hypostatic union. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. Instead, he was 100% God and 100% man coexisting together in one person called Jesus. Or in Hebrew, Hebrew Yeshua. One of the earliest church fathers... <coughs> made the statement about Jesus, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. That describes what happened at Bethlehem. Without ceasing to be what he was. And what was he? God. He became what he was not. And what wasn't he? Before Bethlehem, he wasn't man. As evangelicals, most often... We emphasize that Jesus is God. We focus on Jesus' divine side. And we should. But there's another side to Jesus we shouldn't forget. And that's his human side. Remember, he's as much God as if he'd never been made man. And he's as much man as if he had never been God. Hebrews 4 verse 15 reads, For we do not have a high priest... The context is reading Jesus. He is our high priest since his ascension into heaven. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands our humanness because he was as human as we are. He felt tiredness and exhaustion. He caught colds and probably sometimes the flu. He had indigestion and had body odor. He had headaches. He sneezed. He tripped and fell. He had to learn basic reading and writing. He had to learn Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. He hit his thumb with a hammer. Remember, he was a carpenter. And on and on and on. The singular difference between our humanness and Jesus' humanness is that Jesus was sinless and we aren't. Hebrews 4 verse 15, 
reads, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Paraphrase, Jesus was tempted to sin, just as we as humans are tempted to sin. But he never caved into that temptation, so he never sinned. Jesus was sinless. Before, before Bethlehem, as God, Jesus existed in a spirit form. And after Bethlehem, he existed in a human form as a man. There are numerous reasons Jesus became human. And the primary reason Jesus was born into humanity was so that he could die. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In one word, the name Jesus means Savior. And remember, Mary didn't select his name from an ancient baby book of names. No, the angel said, you will name the child Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Jesus means, Yeshua means Savior forgiver. Jesus came to become the Savior, and that required his death as the sacrificial substitute for our sins. That meant he needed to have an actual body in order to die. Notice three critical words in 1 John 1 and verse 1 we just read. Those words are heard, seen, and handled. Heard, seen, and handled. If we were in a courtroom and called on to be a witness to a crime. And I actually did that once. Uh, I had witnessed something and was asked to share in the witness stand. If that happened to us, we would be required to tell the court what we had heard, what we had seen, and if possible, what we had felt. So John first establishes himself as a credible witness as to who Jesus was. Right up front, at the beginning of this letter, remember this letter doesn't contain the typical components of a letter. There's no greeting. Right up front, John establishes himself as a credible witness to who Jesus was. John described how he had perceived Jesus using his five senses, three of them. He heard the Lord speak, He heard him speak through parables, sermons, private instruction, and counsel. Second, he had seen the Lord. John was an actual eyewitness to Jesus' existence. Third, he had touched the Lord. Touched means to feel and grope as someone would grope for something in the darkness. Remember, Jesus even encouraged people to touch him after the resurrection to substantiate his bodily resurrection from the dead. The reason John mentioned he was a personal eyewitness to Jesus, and this is so important, don't miss this. The reason John mentioned right up front he was a personal eyewitness to Jesus was because he was countering a heretical religious movement that dominated the first three centuries. That movement was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. It is said the philosopher Plato was influential in the development of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an umbrella name that described different religious sects at that time that had some commonality between them. The Gnostics, though, were at a disadvantage because there were no writings from the actual apostles to legitimize their false teachings. The New Testament consists of four authentic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those Gospels are biographical accounts of Jesus from different perspectives. None of those Gospels supported Gnostic teaching. So wanting to be more credible, the Gnostics created their own Gospels fraudulent gospels, and then attach the names of famous Christians to them, such as the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Philip, the gospel of Mary, and others. 
Most of the Gnostic Gospels that have survived were found in a collection of 13 books from the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D. Those books contain 52 Gnostic texts. And not all of them claim to be Gospels or even Christian. Those ancient texts were found in 1945, buried in a jar near an Egyptian town called Nag Hammadi. Nag Hammadi. That's the reason that collection of those ancient documents is called the Nag Hammadi Library. Because those books were discovered at such a late date, the Gnostic Gospels are sometimes called the supposed, supposed lost books of the Bible. As if those books were once a part of the biblical canon and then were lost. Clue. Those books were never part of the biblical canon. And there are no lost books of the Bible. We have all the books God wanted us to have at this time. The earlier church councils were aware of those Gnostic Gospels and decided not to include them in the biblical canon because the church fathers were convinced those books were forgeries. Those books contained fables. Uh, there was almost unanimous consensus that those Gospels contained heretical teaching and constantly contradicted the true, authentic Gospels. That's the reason Catholicism, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Protestants, and Evangelicals, all of us categorically reject those Gnostic Gospels. The reason we should be aware of the Gnostic Gospels is in part because in 2003, an author named Dan Brown published a novel we mentioned last time called The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code. That book has been translated into 44 languages and has sold, get this, some 80 million copies. A runaway bestseller. A movie was made from that book that grossed over $224 million. Mr. Brown used some of the Gnostic Gospels in order to create the storyline in his book, in his novel. Some of the Gnostic ideas presented in the Da Vinci Code are that Jesus fathered a child through a marriage to Mary Magdalene and then supposes that created bloodline has continued to the present, meaning there could be people alive now who are actual descendants from Jesus and Mary. According to Dan Brown, though, the Catholic Church was aware of that and concealed all of that. No, the church didn't conceal that. It just never happened. Brown also accused Catholicism of creating this idea that Jesus was God. And he claimed that the Catholic Church intentionally rejected any ancient texts that challenged those teachings. Once more, none of that is true. Notice the definition. Gnosticism was a religious movement claiming that salvation could be received through a special mystical and higher form of secret knowledge. A religious movement claiming that salvation could be received through a special mystical and higher form of secret knowledge. Earlier church fathers, such as Tertullian, Justin Martyr, and Eusebius from Caesarea, those theologians, those men condemned Gnostic teachers and condemned Gnostic teachings as heretical. Gnosticism was considered the most dangerous heresy during the first three centuries. Ancient Gnosticism was based on two false premises. One, Gnosticism claimed to possess a higher and better form of knowledge. Gnostics claimed to possess a better and higher form of knowledge. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. And gnosis means knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge. In John's time, this Gnostic movement taught a special, mystical, subjective, and emotional form of higher knowledge apart from 
God and apart from Scripture. And Gnosticism taught that that knowledge was available to only a select group that were committed to Gnosticism. The word Gnostic is the opposite of the word agnostic. An agnostic is someone that claims he doesn't know. A Gnostic was someone that claimed to know and to know to a greater degree than others could know. Gnosticism in and of itself, it's false. Because Gnosticism is isolated from God and Scripture. And true knowledge starts at God, not apart from God. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Ancient Gnostics perceived themselves to be a privileged class on an elevated societal and spiritual strata because of this supposed secret knowledge. Second, Gnosticism endorsed a doctrine called dualism. Dualism, and this doctrine is still problematic even now. Dualism said that all that exists, all that exists is divided into two categories. Those categories are matter um, and material things made from matter, matter and all that is spiritual. According to dualism, matter and all material things created from matter are evil. And just those things that are spirit and spiritual are good. Don't miss that. All material things created from matter are evil. And just those things that are spirit and spiritual are good. Dualism teaches matter is evil and spirit is good. That has implications in a practical sense. That means since our bodies consist of matter, our bodies are material, then it doesn't matter what our material bodies decide to do. Our bodies are said to be, according to Gnosticism and dualism, just prisons that incarcerate our souls. So Gnostics could commit sin. No problem. Gnostics could sometimes commit heinous sin. And according to them, it had no meaning or significance to them. Sin wasn't a problem to Gnostics because of this dualism. Because sin didn't affect the human spirit inside their material bodies. According to dualism, there was no moral connection between the body and spirit. Because, remember, the body is bad since it consists of matter and the spirit is good. Because of that false teaching, Gnostics rejected the incarnation of Jesus. Gnostics denied that Jesus had an actual human form and flesh. Because Gnostics believed matter is evil. So it seemed on the surface Jesus had a material form. It seemed he had an actual material body, but according to Gnosticism, he actually didn't. It was just an illusion. In the Gospels, the authentic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the sect of the Pharisees were Jesus' principal enemies. 6,000-some men, Jewish men during the first century that uh, were... uh, legalist and judgmental and hypocritical and these men the pharisees admitted jesus was a man that sect admitted jesus was a man it was apparent but the pharisees said he couldn't be god he couldn't be god to them that was blasphemous because to the pharisee god becoming a man was blasphemous And then after the church started in Acts, Jesus has ascended to heaven, and the church is acting in his place. And through the end of the New Testament, the Gnostics were the principal enemies of Jesus. And the Gnostics said it was possible, possible Jesus could be God, but if he was God, then he couldn't be a man. He couldn't have been a man because he had a material body. And according to Gnosticism, remember, all that is material is bad and all that is spirit is good. Both teachings from the Pharisees 
and the Gnostics were heretical because Christianity is founded on the premise that Jesus was and still is both fully God and fully man. Verse 1, one more time. That which was from the beginning, and we just substantiated, Jesus the Word has existed from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. On the surface, this is an extremely strange beginning to a letter. As we said, though, there's a reason for that strangeness. And that reason is that these first words we just read from verse 1 form a personal refutation of Gnosticism and Gnosticism's dualism. Because John said he had been a viable witness to all that Jesus was. John had been up close and personal to Jesus. And he testified that Jesus had a tangible, material, physiological body. He wasn't an illusion. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't some form of a mirage. No, Jesus actually had a body because John had heard it. John had seen it. And John had touched it. Over the centuries, Gnosticism has evolved into the secular and, quote, scientific arenas as an example I can't substantiate this. Some, though, believe different movies have promoted certain Gnostic concepts. Movies such as Star Wars, The Matrix, and Harry Potter. I haven't seen those films, so I, I don't know. Uh, Carl Jung, and I don't think I can ever pronounce his name correctly. Carl Jung died in 1961. All psychology majors in college know who Jung is. He was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalysist who was a contemporary and for a short time he was a friend of Sigmund Freud. And most people know who Freud was. And if you don't, he was a fraud. Uh, Jung <laughs> called attention to the Nag Hammadi library we just mentioned. Because he felt that the Gnostics had psychological insights that could be beneficial to us. Jung authored seven mystical Gnostic texts that he privately published called Seven Sermons to the Dead. Hmm. Interesting title. Seven Sermons to the Dead. He didn't attribute them to himself, but to an earlier Gnostic religious teacher named Basilides. Most Gnosticism is known now as Neo-Gnosticism, where the prefix Neo means new, so it is a newer form of Gnosticism. In 2005, a Gnostic Luciferian organization called the Neo-Luciferian Church started in Europe primarily in Denmark and Sweden. Gnosticism has also integrated itself into the New Age movement. But most New Agers have no clue about that. Notice verse 2. The life, this is Jesus, was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, Jesus, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Notice in this second verse that Jesus is called eternal life. That means eternal life is both a possession, something we possess, and a person, an actual person. As a possession, eternal life is an endless existence in absolute happiness with God himself. As a possession... And all Christians have eternal life. All Christians have that possession. It's an endless, infinite, forever existence in absolute happiness with God himself. In the afterlife, that existence starts in heaven and then ends up on the new recreated earth. 
We know eternal life is a possession because Romans 6, 23 reads, For the wages of sin is death, meaning the result of sin, consequences of sin is death. But the gift, gift meaning the free, no strings attached, gift of God is eternal life. And where is eternal life found? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is a gift. We receive its salvation. So it's an actual possession. Second, eternal life is a person. As a person, eternal life is God's Son, Jesus. That's from verse 2 we just read. John said, we declare to you that eternal life. Jesus, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So, Jesus has eternal life, and Jesus is eternal life, and we need that entire package. And we receive that package at salvation. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The Greek noun translated here in this verse as fellowship is koinia. That is probably a familiar word to some of us. Koinia in the original language means a partnership or to share something in common to share something in common. It could also be translated as togetherness. It is a common partnership. Now, don't miss this. The essential basis to biblical koinia is agreement. Agreement. The essential nuts and bolts to biblical koinia is agreement. To share something in common, as the definition states, necessitates an agreement about that something to be shared in common. We cannot share something in common and be partners in the most complete sense if we aren't in agreement. An example of that. Suppose we're a member of one of the trades, a pipe fitter, steam fitter, electrician, stonemason, carpenter, welder, plumber, and on and on. I might add, we do need more people in the trades. College isn't the only option after high school. There are more than 11 million job openings in the United States at this moment, and most of them don't require a college degree. Mike Rowe should be a familiar name. He has more common sense than most, and... uh, Definitely more common sense than anyone on the left. Uh, He's from a television program called Dirty Jobs. And now the host of a television series called Somebody's Gotta Do It. That's a cool title. In 2008, Mike Rowe started a nonprofit foundation called Mike Rowe Works. Where works consists of all capital letters. Because Mike Rowe has a passion for the work ethic. And that foundation is aimed at connecting students interested in learning a skilled trade with schooling, training, and job opportunities. So we do need more people in the trades. I digress though. But suppose as a tradesman, I'm part of a crew on a construction site. And uh, our crew is assigned to a project, sizable project. The problem is none of us on our crew agree on the particulars of that job. Now we have received instructions on how we are to perform that job, but some of us some of us have other opinions about how it should be done. So there's this constant contention between us. There's constant arguing. So that means there's no true koinia. There's no true fellowship between us because there's no agreement. We are related to one another as co-employees. We have the same foreman. We're employed for the same company. We're part of the same trade union, but there's no actual fellowship, no actual koinonia between us because we cannot agree. As Christians, we are related to God through salvation. And that's a constant and permanent connection. But our fellowship 
Our agreeableness between ourselves and God can fluctuate. It fluctuates because we commit sin, and God cannot agree to our sin. Notice the definition. Someone's spiritual relationship to God is defined as someone's permanent relational connection to God as his Father. Someone's spiritual relationship to God is defined as someone's permanent relational connection to God as his child. He is our Father, we are his child. As a Christian, God is our spiritual father, and we are his spiritual child. That is our relational connection to God, and that cannot fluctuate. That cannot change. John 1, verses 11 and 12, again, John's gospel. He, Jesus, came to his own. Who did Jesus come to? He came to the Jewish people first. He was a Jewish man. And his own, his own people the Jewish people, did not receive him. As a whole, the Jewish nation rejected him. That's the reason for his crucifixion. Verse 12, But as many as received him, there were exceptions. To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Believing on Jesus, resulting in salvation, establishes a permanent relational connection between ourselves and God. He becomes our spiritual father, and we become a spiritual child. I, I must add, that relational connection doesn't happen until salvation. Pre-salvation, we are not his child, and he is not our father. He is our father in a creational sense, not in a spiritual sense. But our relation to God, starting at salvation, is permanent, and that doesn't change. Second definition, someone's spiritual fellowship to God is defined as an agreeable relational connection to God as his child. Notice the difference. Someone's spiritual fellowship to God is defined as an agreeable relational connection to God as his child, meaning that God and us as his children are in agreement. And that condition, that koinia, that fellowship can fluctuate contingent on us. That's because our sin can cause much disagreement between ourselves and God. God can never agree to our sin. An example, as a child, I was the oldest of five children. Um, My parents experimented on me, figured out what they did wrong and tried to correct it, you know, going down the line. So I was a guinea pig. As a child, I sometimes got into trouble. Sometimes. I should add that some of it was unjustified. There was a serious element of injustice in our home sometimes. I was blamed for stuff I didn't do, but that's, that's, that happens. If I did get in trouble, sometimes my mother would discipline me, correct me. And these are, I don't know, we're older, most of us. My parents used a belt on me. I don't recommend that. I think it can be abusive. We used a paddle on our son's. Uh, Our parents used a belt. Uh, I didn't want my mother to ever spank me because my mother had terrible aim with a belt. I mean, the objective was to hit me on my bottom, my posterior, and she hit hit me everywhere but there. But sometimes she would discipline me, but sometimes my mother would say, she would tell me to wait until my dad got home. That wasn't good. Because as soon as my dad did get home, what did she do? She ran to him and immediately just spilled it all and just told him all the stuff I just did. Exaggerated, of course. Exaggerated what I'd done. She used inflammatory language. But she told him all this stuff. And after hearing that, something would change between him and me. We were still related. I didn't want to be, but we were still related. We were still father and son, but we weren't on agreeable terms. My father would be in strong disagreement with my wrongful actions, and there would be consequences, and none of those consequences were ever good. 
See, our relationship hadn't changed, but our fellowship had. Third definition. Someone's spiritual fellowship to other Christians, to one another, is defined as an agreeable relational component to other Christians as spiritual children. So first we're to have a maintained fellowship to God, and then we are to have fellowship to other Christians. And that is defined as an agreeable relational connection to other Christians as spiritual children. Christians are related to one another. Since God is our mutual father, we're part of his family. We are each interrelated as God's spiritual children. That's the reason some Christians, probably happens more in the South than in the West, some Christians use familial language and call one another brother or sister. I can't count the times someone hasn't called me pastor or Pastor Larry or preacher. I was often called preacher. Um, I can't count the times people called me Brother Larry because I'm a Christian brother to them and we are interrelated. Understand if we're in fellowship with God, then we're in fellowship with anyone else that is in fellowship with God. There are four reasons 1 John was written. Four reasons. And each verse that states one of those reasons includes the phrase, these things we write to you, or these things I, John, write to you. The first reason, the first purpose for this book is stated in verse 4. We will address the other three reasons as we go through this series. Reason one, first John was written so that we could experience complete joyfulness. Complete and full joyfulness. Notice verse 4. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Franklin Graham is the son of the great evangelist, the greatest evangelist in modern times, Billy Graham. Franklin is president and CEO of a phenomenal international Christian relief organization called Samaritan's Purse. And uh, we have supported Samaritan's Purse from time to time. In addition, he is also CEO of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Associations. Now, now Franklin is a, an amazing man, but he's not his father. There was only one Billy Graham, and, uh, and even his son can't match his father. Time to time, though, Franklin does smaller evangelistic crusades, not that those crusades are small, just smaller in comparison to his father's massive crusades. He did one recently in Mongolia that 17,300 people attended, and hundreds were saved. Franklin's crusades, though, unlike his father's crusades, aren't called crusades because of political correctness and because of the possible connection to the Middle Ages Crusades, of which his have nothing to do with. Instead, that Mongolia event was called the Festival of Joy. Festival of Joy. That's an appropriate name, as Jesus promises someone joy. The famous novelist and apologist C.S. Lewis said, quote, Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Translated as God wants his children to experience full joy. Notice John 15, verse 11. These things I, Jesus, has spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Romans 5, 15, verse 13, Paul said, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. If we maintain a state of agreeableness with God, if we maintain fellowship with Him, if Jesus is permitted to be in charge of us, as per the Carrie Underwood song, Jesus, Take the Wheel. If Jesus is in control of us, then we will manifest the nine-part fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
meaning these nine things will characterize us as a Christian. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And notice the second component is joy. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, um, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. Someone added to that last line, uh, against such there is no law. Someone said, that means there's no such law against too much love. There's no such law against too much joy. And on and on through each of those nine components. Meaning there is no limit to the amount of joyfulness that is available to us. I need to clarify something. Joyfulness and happiness are related, but there is some difference between joyfulness and happiness. Sometimes we use those words joyfulness and happiness on an interchangeable basis. We use them as synonyms, meaning to us those words are one and the same. But in a technical sense, there is a fundamental difference between them. Joyfulness is some different than happiness. Happiness comes from the word happenstance. Happiness is derived from happenstance. And we get our word circumstance from happenstance. That means happiness is contingent on what is happening around us. Happiness is in some sense contingent on our circumstances. And that's the reason some people respond to the question, how are you? Some people respond, I'm okay under the circumstances. And the appropriate reaction to that response is, and what are you doing under the circumstances? Happiness seems to be always out there in the future, such as I could be happier if I can find a better job. I could be happier if I could just finish school. I might find happiness if everything comes together for me. Let me reiterate an irrefutable, undeniable fact. And that is, there is no problem-free existence. It doesn't exist. Life is full of problems. And some of them are severe, gut-wrenching, heart-shattering problems. Job 14, verse 1, the man that experienced more problems than all of us put together, Job said, man who is born of woman, that's an interesting phrase because I'm not sure how else we could get here other than being born from a woman. Man who is born of woman is a few days, and notice, full of trouble. And uh, quadruple that if we happen to pastor a congregation. Happiness depends on right happenings. But if things go wrong around us, God said we can still have joyfulness. Someone's joyfulness is not contingent on something tangible around us. Someone's joyfulness is not some evasive something out there in the future, but joyfulness is a present state of mind. Notice the definition. Joyfulness is an internal sense of glad contentment. We have chosen, no matter what might be going on around us. Joyfulness is a choice, and it is an internal sense of glad contentment. Not just contentment, glad contentment, no matter what might be going on around us. The secret to maintaining joyfulness is to fight the urge, fight the temptation to let circumstances steal our joy. I don't know if you're aware of this, but our circumstances are changing. Societal circumstances continue to deteriorate at an obscene rate. Inflation has affected prices on everything from gas to groceries. The stock market is wiping out people's retirements. It is mine. Crime is out of control. More and more felons are being released from prison ahead of schedule and are committing heinous crimes. The federal government is becoming more and more intrusive. The IRS is now militarized. 87,000 new agents and millions of rounds of ammunition. What is that about? 
Transgenderism is now the latest twisted hot button. And our status in society is now contingent on our response to that foolishness. Misgendering someone or dead naming someone, it is, as it is now called, can literally cost someone their job. Communist China wants to dominate us and will dominate us unless something dramatic happens. Our government is $31 trillion in debt and no one from either political party seems to care. Student loan forgiveness isn't forgiveness. It's stealing from those that paid off their own student loans and who never agreed to be responsible for someone else's student loans. It's not all bad, though. I was relieved to hear just days ago that our vice president said our southern border is closed. I, I had no idea. I was under the impression that between 5,000 and 8,000 illegal migrants cross our border each day. But dummy me, I didn't know. Our southern border is closed. I feel better. Do you know what bugs me? To see a politician look straight into the camera with a bold face and lie and think we're stupid enough to believe them. And apparently we do have a lot of stupid people because we've elected some really stupid people to office. You can interpret that however you want. People, the fact is things are upside down and inside out and getting worse. And those things can steal our joyfulness if we permit them to. That's the reason I caution people about digesting too much media. Even media from a conservative perspective. I am a strong conservative. Maybe you got that impression. I don't know. <laughs> but, but you know my homepage on my computer? It's not Fox. It's MSNBC. Now, why would I do that? Because I want to know the opposition. If you only know your side to the argument, you don't understand the argument. You need to be aware and informed on both sides. It's amazing how, how crazy they are. But I would tell people, don't digest too much media, even from a conservative perspective, in order to be relevant and speak to the culture, and I do. Now, not many churches do, but I do. Now, some people don't like that, and that's fine. There are other churches you can go to. But I speak to the culture, and in order to do that, I have to be informed to a certain degree, and I am informed. But if I spent literally hours and hours, as some people do, consuming the latest conservative commentary on societal problems and craziness, all that negativity would drive me insane and cause me to suffer from manic depression. So to prevent that, I set boundaries on the information I expose myself to because we cannot let our circumstances steal our joy. A man named Victor Ham served as interpreter for the late international evangelist Louis Palau. Louis died some months ago. He was to South America what Billy Graham was to North America. An amazing evangelist. And Victor Ham was an interpreter for him in South American countries and other countries in Europe. And Victor described how the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin had sentenced Victor's own father to a Siberian prison camp. He was considered a political prisoner because he was an outspoken Christian. The elder Mr. Ham and the other prisoners were incarcerated in the Gulag. The Gulag was the name of a system of labor camps in the former Soviet Union from 1930 through about 1955. Millions of people were imprisoned in those camps. A sizable, significant percentage of them were political prisoners, as was Victor's father. Mr. Ham worked in a mine. Each morning, the prisoners stood in line to receive their picks and shovels. Those men were sentenced to hard labor. Each evening, the men would return to hand in their equipment. And soon Mr. Ham began to pray, Lord, there has to be another Christian in this camp. Has to be. 
please help me find him. I want a friend, and I want someone to pray with. One afternoon as he was praying, he thought he recognized a certain look about the man who handed out the mining equipment. He said to himself, I think he could be a Christian. I think he could. He just has that air about him. But how do I approach him without giving myself away? If he's KGB, then I'm finished. But he felt he just had to know. So with simultaneous joy and fear in his heart, he said to this man, listen carefully because there's some very creative dialogue in this exchange. Newer Christians won't understand all of it, but older Christians will. So he said to this man, you know, they expect us to achieve our goals in the mind, but they don't give us the bricks and the water and the straw to get the job done. Remember, he's working in a mine. There were no bricks and straw. There was water, but no bricks and water and straw. That's a strange question. That question sounds so strange on the surface, but anyone familiar with the Old Testament would immediately recognize that was an allusion to Moses and the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. This man looked at Mr. Ham for a moment and then said, wait a minute, stay here. And then after all the other men had left, he returned and said to Mr. Ham, you said something. I'm curious about why did you mention bricks and straw and water this is a mine why did you mention those things where did you get that Ham said oh I read about it in a pretty good book he tried hard to keep from trembling I mean remember this is a potential life and death exchange this man responded hmm Yes, I think I read that book once too. Then he paused. I notice you don't swear like the other men. And they're always fighting. But you don't get into that sort of thing. Why is that? Ham said, because my father won't let me. And then there was this long pause in the conversation. As this man carefully examined Mr. Ham up and down and then asked, your father wouldn't happened to be my father too, would he? Ham started to feel some excitement and said, I don't know, my father only has one son. This man said, my father has only one son too. Are you a believer? Ham said, yes. Are you a believer? Imagine that. Imagine that reunion. Those men hugged and hugged and cried and rejoiced that God had brought them together. And all that transpired in the middle of miserable conditions in the Soviet Siberian gulag. Immediately the two of them started to meet to pray in secret. But their prayer times didn't remain secret. Their joy wouldn't permit it because joyfulness insists on multiplying itself and others. And at the time that pair had been released from that prison camp, 300 other prisoners had come to follow Jesus. Joseph Stalin was a fool. He deprived millions of men and women. He deprived them of every possible pleasure in those camps. But he had no power to stop or shut out their joy. We don't have to let anyone or anything steal our joy. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that we can have true joyfulness and not just happiness. Our joyfulness is not contingent on what transpires around us. Our joy comes from maintaining koinonia with you maintaining that state of agreeableness with you, walking with you, permitting your son Jesus to be in charge of us. And we will be filled with incredible, unexplainable joy. We need joy now more than we've ever needed before. This nation 
is a nation at risk. Things are happening at turbo speed. And so much of it is so bad and so wrong. But God, help us to be like Mr. Ham was in that Siberian camp. Help us to be joyful in spite of it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what we've learned. Bless it. I pray and make a difference. Use it to make a difference in each of us. And I pray in your son's mighty name. Amen.